This is an American Workplace, a podcast dedicated to rewatching and discussing NBC's beloved mockumentary series, The Office. My name is Katie White, and joining me, as always, is my good friend and co-host, Chad Hopkins. How are you this late Tuesday evening, Chad? I'm doing all right. You know, it is late, but uh, as I just told you, we normally record on Wednesdays and we release Thursdays. So recording Tuesday night, I don't have to edit tonight. So I'm happy, especially after last (laughs) week's fiasco. Yeah, um, about that fiasco, my nice, pretty, new, expensive hard drive should be (laughs) nice and fast. So thanks, everyone. (laughs) Yeah, thank Uh, you all for your patience. It was was a tough week for both of us because your computer just completely died while we were still recording. And so that left me solo to finish it. Um, (laughs) And then once (sighs) I got it all edited and piecemeal together, I... The way I did it, just for people who are interested, I downloaded the audio from the live stream and then I spliced together your audio with the audio I recorded on my computer. And so it it did take a while, but I was all interested in audio quality, audio quality. And then I export the file only for it to be fuzzy for some reason. And so I tried to go back into my software and what do you know, it lost my audio so I couldn't fix it. So... Goodness. It was just yeah. technology working against both of us. Um, but thank you all for being patient. And hopefully that doesn't happen again or happens very rarely because, you know, part of having a good podcast is, yes, good discussion, which I think we have a plenty, but also good audio quality. And so we don't want to let you guys down. Yeah, hopefully the bulk of our technical issues are over. Um, that was not fun. Yeah, Chad, uh, I texted Chad as soon as my computer crashed, and I was like, so this, there is a blinking question mark on my screen. This does not look good. And I was like, can you finish solo? Thankfully, we got most way through before my computer decided to completely die. So thanks for your patience. We do have a new review from, pardon my pronunciation, Zarna Ziura, we think is your is your name? Is <laughs> the pronunciation of her name? Thank you for your kind words. And from Pilly Baxter, uh, who we believe is Shirley Lim, who also just uh, subscribed on Patreon. So thank you both. Thank you all uh, for your words and your subscriptions. And with that, let's just go ahead and dive into our first episode. Crime Aid is the first one we're talking about today. It aired on October 23rd, 2008, was directed by Jennifer Salata and written by Charlie Grandy. Things between Michael and Holly are off to a good start as they embark upon their third date. What was meant to be dinner reservations turned into sex in the office stairwell. So yay for them. Uh, Not yay, however, is when they show up for work the next day to find that Dunder Mifflin and... Uh, it's not addressed, but potentially the other businesses in the building has been robbed all because they forgot to lock the doors after finishing their, uh, work (laughs) the night before, uh, to recoup their losses. Michael decides to host a crime aid auction in the warehouse with the Schrodinger's cat big ticket item being a pair of front row Bruce Springsteen tickets and backstage passes to a concert. And those may or may not exist as we come to find out. Yeah, it's, um... Gotta feel pretty funny when you're so excited about your date that you don't even make it to the date before you have sex, and then you (laughs) ruin everyone's month or year by having all of their stuff stolen because you were just so eager. So that's exactly what happened for Michael and Holly. Michael, who was really trying, I guess, to be a gentleman and wasn't, didn't want to assume that they were having sex, so he just went ahead and asked her. 
hey, do you think we'll be having sex after our date? <laughs> and she said yes. And he, um, I guess that's polite, I guess. <laughs> it's a little weird. I don't think it's the normal way to go about doing that. But it was their third date. Um, and Michael says that is the traditional thing that you do on a third date. So he just wanted to make sure that she was on the same page. Thankfully, she was. <laughs> yeah, I'll take his word on that. I, I wrote it in my notes. He he asked her or drops the, the sex hint in the most chalant, nonchalant way. What, he says, what we eat sort of depends on if we're having sex after. And boom, it's out there. Um, and it's funny that she's just as excited about it as he is. She answers, hell yeah. In fact, this is the second date in as many nights. It's it's their third date total, but the night before they were out mini golfing. They were talking about it when they got to work. Michael says, hey, I'm enjoying myself. I'm enjoying spending time with you. When can we meet up again? She says, hey, I'm free tonight. Boom. I mean, they are all uh, full speed ahead. And it's they're, they're just a great match for each other um, that they can be that upfront with each other and not just completely throw things off. I think to uh, how I met your mother in episode one, when Ted says, I love you on the very first date. And that just completely crashes that relationship right off the bat. But I feel like if Michael had said it in this episode, Holly might've reciprocated pretty easily. I love going off the, the food thing. What I eat depends on whether or not we have sex. It cuts to a talking head of Michael (laughs) just completely serious completely deadpan and he goes i'll I'll probably get soup or something light (laughs) like he's just completely planning out his his meal he's very concerned about um what food to eat before you have sex it feels like to me it's been a long time since he's had enjoyable sex (laughs) if that's That's a way to put it like i feel like jan wasn't fun (laughs) so that's probably where he's at now is that this could be something that he actually looks forward to so i think he's very nervous and it's cute (laughs) it's showing yeah he knows that he can joke with holly but in a way she also keeps him in check um holly's sense of humor to me seems at least a bit more refined than his and uh, she's less tone deaf than he is so like when a when there's a joke that goes on for too long, she says, hey, it's done. Like the example is the whole, oh, I just remembered I can't go out with you tonight. I'm going out with you tonight bit that they go back and forth on a couple of times. And Michael drags it on and on and on. She says, nope, that's enough. That's good. We can move on. <laughs> so I, I they have that similar sense of humor, but she's just like, OK, now is the time to move on to something else. <laughs> which michael needs like he didn't yeah. need a jan he didn't need somebody he didn't need a teacher or a mom but he needs a little bit of correction <laughs> and i think holly um is a good balance for that i wonder why michael decided to set the dinner reservation for so late we know they get out of the office at five and he set the reservations for 8 p.m and so i don't know if he was planning on them going home and getting ready for this date or if it was the plan from the from the start to just hang out after work until the time. And that's what gets them so riled up and eager for sex is that they're waiting around with this tension in the air playing cards while they're waiting to go uh, eat dinner first. And so they're just chilling out in the office by themselves for two and a half hours until it's time to go. So I don't know exactly what was going through his mind there. That's a question I ask a lot of the time with Michael. But here it's not because he's making some sort of racist joke. It's just, I guess, poor planning. Um, And then I did think it was interesting that Holly 
quote-unquote forgot her keys um, so that they could lose the camera crew. So they were on their way out, they um, were nearly to the car, and Holly said, oh, shoot, I forgot my keys, I need to go back in, will you come with me? And Michael and Holly go back in, and she just wanted to make out with him without the camera crew watching, and so Michael says, oh, you know, if we turn down our mics, we'll be completely alone. And, of course, he turns them all the way up, and we hear everything, and it evidently does not just become making out. They have sex in the office, and that's when the whole not locking up thing takes place. But I thought it was interesting that Holly initiated that. So she is just as eager as he is. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of a moment when Michael tried to shut out the camera crew from his office by closing all the blinds, but then he forgot about his microphone in the same same way that he did here. I don't know why he didn't just like take it off and turn it off. That seemed like it'd be the, the smarter, easier thing to do, but uh, it does make for a really funny moment as he turns the microphone all the way up, and uh, I guess the camera crew gets a little bit more than they bargained for that night in, as far as documentary footage goes. Uh, at least audio. <laughs> but then the the robbery does happen. They show up at work the next day together and everything is gone. The office is stripped clean. There's no uh, there's no computers. Oscar's laptop is missing. Andy's no, that's a deleted scene. We'll get to that later. Uh, Andy's chair. They were ransacked. They they were the robbers were merciless and they just took everything. And Holly feels really bad because she realizes that, yeah, it's probably our fault. Anything immediately about Michael and Holly, Michael or Holly, or do you want to move on for a bit? Well, there is the whole notion of the the imaginary Springsteen tickets going into the auction, but we can talk about that once we get to that portion of the auction. So, Yeah, so the auction. Michael decides to host a uh, crime aid auction. He thinks that it'll be this big community event when when in reality the office, David Wallace, which is cool, shows up. And I think there were a couple of faces we didn't know. Maybe a couple of community members came. But more than likely, it was, you know, a friend of somebody or somebody's sister who was in town. Like, it was just going to be random people. I don't think it was a big community event by any means. Uh, We knew most of the faces there. And so Michael decides that everyone should auction off something to help replenish the office and what was stolen. And the big ticket item is these Bruce Springsteen tickets, which Michael scored. They're supposed to be amazing, front row, backstage pass, the whole nine. And we see a number of people auction off things. We get um, Phyllis is auctioning off a hug. We get uh, Hank from security um, auctions (laughs) off a a horrible CD of of him playing guitar. We have Daryl auctioning off time at the bar right now, meaning (laughs) let's blow off this auction. Uh, So really a number of people just auctioning off little tiny things that they may or may not have. It could be a service. It could be, you know, just let's get out of here. The whole time this is happening, there's this sort of side B-plot between Andy, Angela, and Dwight, where at the beginning of the episode, Andy and Angela are passing out save the dates for their wedding. And that's significant because it means that, one, Angela is further committing despite her infidelity, and Andy, number two, is still oblivious to her infidelity. And then even further... Dwight feels betrayed because here he thought he had something with Angela. Yes, she's engaged to Andy, but she's not sleeping with him. She's sleeping with Dwight. And now further committing to the engagement, further committing to a date, like we are getting married. When this date comes, it is our time to to be together. Uh, 
it it ruins that idea in his head that there that she was committed to him in a way too um it's sort of a separation and so it's upsetting to see how upset he is when he he talks to phyllis and he just desperately asks why is she marrying andy and phyllis actually has some pretty good insight she says angela's not really a risk taker and andy's not really a risk which is exactly right angela is not interested in anything that's not a sure thing she thinks that andy is a little boring and a little safe and that's exactly what she needs what she wants um but it's not even really what she wants because we can see how uninterested, how disinterested she is in the whole relationship and in Andy. But it's what she thinks she wants. And so she is, quote, committing to Andy because it's safe. And Dwight it was too unpredictable for her, I think. And she just couldn't predict his every move. And Angela is a control freak. And she needed to have control over every aspect of that relationship. And she didn't have it. Andy's a college graduate who comes from a family with money. So, I mean, that's about... As safe as you can get, really, honestly. Dwight is this farm owner who lives on the edge of society. Uh, he's got familial ties back to Nazism, we've heard in the past. It's th There's lots of risk where Dwight is concerned, and it's just not there with Andy. So I think that's a question we've asked here before, and we sort of bantered some ideas back and forth, but Phyllis just really hits the nail on the head. Now, throughout the rest of the episode, you see Dwight conferring with Phyllis, asking for advice. And she says, how about you give her an ultimatum, give Angela an ultimatum. So she knows that you are going to make her make a choice. She either chooses Andy or she breaks off the engagement and chooses you. Dwight sees that as, okay, this is a way to win Angela back. But really what Phyllis is saying, this is a way to either have Angela or move on with your life. And he really doesn't see that second that second option as acceptable and he lets her know that later in the episode it was basically you have andy or you have me um and if if you have andy you cannot have me and dwight kind of misses that part the sex will stop i will stop sleeping with you if you choose andy um and angela ultimately makes it clear that she chooses andy she missed the deadline that dwight gave her and so dwight goes to phyllis and says okay she rejected me now what Phyllis says, well, now you have your answer and now you can move on. He says, that was your master plan all along? You, I, that's not a plan. And she says, I think everyone deserves to be with someone who wants to be with them or something like that. It's a nice gesture to Dwight that she thinks he can find someone who wants to be with him and Angela's not that person. But Dwight's not really settling for that. He really, really wants to be with Angela and he can't understand that she doesn't reciprocate that. The scene where Phyllis offers the advice of giving the ultimatum is in the elevator, which I just wanted to note is a really unique shot because it's from the perspective of the elevator security camera. And I just wanted to ask, do, do we think the documentary crew got the elevator security footage or did they plant their own camera in the elevator? Just a who knows kind of thing, hmm. you know? I hadn't really thought about that. I, I, I saw the angle, but I didn't mm -hmm. think about it would seem almost too intrusive to take the security footage mm -hmm. i don't know there was reference to security tapes because dwight points yeah. out to michael that whoever robbed the place uh one it's a it's a classic seven man job i don't know how he knows that but <laughs> uh, they stole the security footage and so they don't, don't have any way to actually identify these uh thieves and so there's reference to security cameras and the only place i can think of 
that we know of is the elevator. So I don't know if they maybe just got permission or maybe in creating this documentary, the office park or Scranton or Dunder Mifflin uh, waived their rights to any sort of footage on taken on the premises. I don't know. But just an interesting question. It's not that important in the scheme of things. <laughs> interesting to think about, though. Yeah. And one more thing on Andy and Angela. You said it already, but it's worth really driving home that they were passing out, say, the dates. They set a date for their wedding, um, which last time we saw them planning, Angela was just crapping on every idea that Andy had. And this isn't good enough. And I don't want to get married there. And just really really being hard on him so they evidently found a place and found a day and they're making steps in the right direction so that's got to be killing dwight his forlorn look after angela chooses andy uh he, he gave her the deadline of i think six fourteen p.m which is during the auction and he stares at her and she just stares over at andy and so she's made her choice and he just looks so depressed and he just stares after her for a moment before he droops his head in defeat and later, you know, Dwight and Phyllis meet again. He blames her, says, you're just being selfish because you want to keep the job as head of the party planning committee. And Phyllis slaps him and time passes. But then it's Phyllis's turn to auction off her hug. And Michael doesn't think there'll be any interest, but it turns into a bidding war between Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration, Oscar and Dwight, it turns out, who who just keeps on upping everybody's uh bid by a penny which isn't how auctions work but whenever dwight uh but what i think that shows you know earlier in the episode she said to dwight and you said this as well she, she thinks everyone deserves to be with someone who also wants to be with them and by bidding on her and driving up the price he shows one that he's thankful for the effort she gave uh she put forth to help him with his problem and it also allows bob to show how much he cares about her uh by shelling out in the end a thousand bucks just to hug his wife. Uh, so I, I thought that was a sweet moment from Dwight uh, just to sort of say thank you to Phyllis. See, that's funny because I took that in a totally different way. I took that because Andy was bidding on Phyllis's hug. That's true. That too. Dwight was just trying to be the alpha male and just be like, I, I have more money than you. I mean, one penny more, but I have, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to win against Andy. Both probably, and and it's it's it should be noted that it's for Phyllis mm -hmm. for her auction items. So. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that at all. Now that you mention it, um, I, I think that's a, a good insight because I forgot that Andy was bidding as well. Uh, <laughs> Andy says to Angela, "I need a hug right now, unless you're going to give me one." <laughs> she says, "Not here." <laughs> I had that in my funny <laughs> moments. I love that. Not here. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think I think there is room for both of those because at the end of it all, I think Dwight does have a little like a look on his face, a certain look about him that shows that he's pleased that Phyllis is so pleased with how well that turned out. So And it should be noted that her hug sold for a thousand dollars. So um to Bob, I guess. Mm -hmm. In the end, yeah. Now, there's not a lot with Pam specifically. We learn at the very start that she got a part-time job at corporate because it's expensive in New York. Uh, Michael got her the job, so now he knows where to reach her 16 to 18 hours a week. Uh, but I also noted, you know, that means Jim does too, right? Because in 
last episode, we talked about how they were just sort of off the mark with each other and weren't able to get in contact. So hopefully that eases that situation a little bit. And then also the deleted scene at the bar with her art school friends from the last episode was used as the junk voicemail in this episode. So nice uh, redistribution of assets, I think is the term. It worked out. Yeah, that was really subtle. Um, it was just a little tiny clip of it. It was talking about how, um, like, you could take the girl out of Philly, and then Pam says, Scranton. Right. <laughs> and in the deleted scene, they make, they make fun of her for Scranton. Um, <laughs> but it was just that, it was those two little lines that they clipped from that deleted scene. So it was cool to place that. So they did end up using it eventually. We get a little bit of Jim. Uh, so Jim takes Daryl's offer uh, to <laughs> go out to the bar in the middle of the auction. Daryl goes to the front and says, uh, somebody want to grab a drink with me and the warehouse guys right now? Jim says, $5. Daryl says, so. <laughs> and so they go out to the bar. They're out with the warehouse guys. Jim's there. He goes to the bar to buy a round of drinks. And who walks in but Roy? So... Things are awkward and tense. Um, Roy says, don't worry, I'm not going to hit you. Jim says something. He says, oh, okay, I wasn't thinking you were. Um, And then Roy joins the group. So eventually Roy and Jim get to talking, and um, Roy asks all about Pam, and Jim fills him in. He says that Pam is happy that they are engaged. She's at art school in New York. And he says, you know what, she's really happy. Like She was out with her friends until 8 a.m., and Roy says, well, you were a friend, meaning you don't know what she's doing. So Jim decides to hop in his car and drive to New York. Thankfully, he makes it about halfway, I assume. He, he's on his way. And he says, you know what? No, I'm not going to do this. I'm not that guy and we are not that couple. And he turns around. As I've said, I watched with the captions, and this was the first time I've watched this one with the captions because I always thought he said, thought you were her friend, which also works, mm-hmm. but this is so much more. The, when he says, you were a friend, mm-hmm. like, you were just a friend. I was engaged to Pam, and Jim was a friend, mm-hmm. and now you're engaged to Pam. So that was a lot more than what I thought it was. He plants that idea, and you see it immediately take hold in Jim's mind. Uh, But I'm so glad that he does change his mind right before he takes that exit to New York, because going to New York City like this for the reason he did is a total Roy move or, you know, is born of jealousy. I I don't know if Roy actually would have put forth that much effort, (laughs) to be honest, but it's it's a Roy thought that Pam would be out there in New York cheating on him. And so I'm glad Jim realizes, no, it's silly. I trust Pam. Our relationship is real. I'm looking forward to marrying this girl. And I know that she's looking forward to marrying me back. So it's a a very mature moment that he turns back around and just forgets it all. Watching him in the car when he says that line, I'm not that guy and we are not that couple. He seems almost relieved to realize that he has nothing to worry about. It's like he just remembers like it's Pam and it's me and we're fine. Mm -hmm. It's like, it just hits him. And he's like, you know what? No, we don't need to do this. Um, And that's such a nice, like, he's like reminded of his relationship, which is just refreshing. Now, going back to Holly and Michael, uh, Michael did promise the Bruce Springsteen tickets and he keeps delaying it 
throughout the entire auction. In fact, starting off the auction, uh, he's playing Huey Lewis in the News, Heart of Rock and Roll, because he thinks it's a Bruce Springsteen song. Not really much similarity between those two bands, but whatever. And Daryl actually, this is a funny moment as well, but Daryl says, yeah, Michael gave me a top 10 list of his favorite Bruce Springsteen songs. Three of them were Huey Lewis in the News. One was Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. Yeah, and then the other was Short People by Randy Newman, who, if you don't know who Randy Newman is, he's the guy who sings the songs in Toy Story movies. So not much similarity whatsoever (laughs) between those two people. Um, They're both men, (laughs) singers. Okay, you got me. Yes, they are men. (laughs) And they're both musicians in some respect. (laughs) Uh, So that that always makes me laugh, hearing Michael like try and hype everybody up for these Springsteen tickets with Huey Lewis in the News. But then he leads in with puns throughout the whole thing, and people keep thinking he's about to give off these items, but eventually the time comes when he has to sort of ride or die. He says, oh no, these tickets are gone. Has anybody seen an envelope labeled Bruce Springsteen front row and backstage pass? No? Oh, well, I guess they're lost then. Sorry, guys. (laughs) And, oh, it's, it's a pretty i want to say it's a pretty good lie it's not really but it it was a sort of clever spur of the moment thing i think where oh man i was stupid enough to label the envelope and somebody stole them it's like he's trying to use his own ineptitude to work for him you know kind of so i know i have the discussion topic today and i do have one planned but also this since we're talking about it like, what do you think he thought was going to happen? Like, did he... It it seems like he just thought tickets might just appear <laughs> and that he could just use them. Like, I don't know what he was thinking. I, I don't know. I think he was trying to prove Oscar wrong because when he first mentioned the idea of the auction, Oscar says, you know, this is just going to end up, end up being us spending money on things we don't want to get money back for ourselves, which doesn't work. And so by coming up with this hot ticket item, Michael was hoping to get people that aren't Dunder Mifflin employees in seats. And as you already mentioned, he wasn't very successful. I think there's maybe five or six in like the back rows that we just don't know, don't recognize, but they don't win any of the bids that we see. And then when Michael admits that the tickets are gone, they pretty much all leave anyways. So there's even this deleted scene where Michael says, don't ask me how I got the tickets. Don't ask me if I got the tickets. In fact, don't ask me anything about the tickets. And so I, I don't know what he was planning on happening, if he was have, planning on having a bid and then realizing that the tickets weren't there and just keeping the money because they did the bid. I, I don't know what was going through his head, but it, it wasn't very well thought out. There's no good scenario. No, It's all... Yeah. But what does come out of that situation, I I think a moment of maturity is when he actually approaches Holly when all is said and done and starts to confess to her. And I I think that's a big deal for Michael. I don't think Michael pre-Holly would have confessed to anybody that he was completely lying about it. I think back to healthcare in season two, there was never any admission that there wasn't a surprise, you know? In that scene, Holly has a talking head where she says, you know, the Springsteen tickets are always too good to be true. A lot of Michael seems to be too good to be true, but everything has been true so far, except for the tickets. 
<laughs> but they're very happy together. Yeah, and that's what the the end of this episode really cements to me is yes, they screwed up and got a whole bunch of stuff stolen, but they're still happy in their relationship together. And at the very end of the episode, we get a little drama. David Wallace is um, there to support the crime aid. Um, he auctions off a weekend at his place at Martha's Vineyard. And at the end of the auction, he sees Michael kiss Holly. So close. He did not know that they were dating. And that's what he says. That's the last take of the episode, the last scene. Um, he says, I did not know that they were together. Yeah, so that's some bad news. Yeah, he's very obviously bothered by it. And after the whole Jan Michael situation and the aftermath of that, I don't blame him. But we have to wait until five minutes from now to figure out what happens. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move into our funny moments. What do you got, Katie? It's always a good time when we get Creed funny moments. So I will start with him. After they've been robbed, Creed says, nobody steals from Creed Bratton and gets away with it. The last person to do this disappeared. His name? Creed Bratton. <laughs> so that opens up just so many questions. What I believe happened is that Creed took somebody's identity. I, I guess so. That's what I take <laughs> from it. Yeah, so Creed is not Creed. Yeah, we know Creed's not his real name because in Money, in season three, with uh, Michael declaring bankruptcy and all that, Creed says, yeah, when Creed Bratton gets debt, he just transfers it to this other person. I don't remember the name, uh, but it's his actual identity. William Charles. Schneider. Oh, that's right. Good job. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so it makes sense that he has tried to pass that off as a stolen identity, which I think is funny. Um, and then later he tries to auction himself uh, with no details. It's just Creed. He says, yeah, it's all inclusive. <laughs> I don't want to know what that means. I feel means. like it could be... It, I, mm, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> don't want to dig into that. I, I love that, you know, at the start of the episode, Holly and Michael are talking about their date the previous night and playing mini golf. Michael says, you know, I've been thinking about getting my own set of putt-putt golf clubs. So, one club? Uh, I mean, golf people... <laughs> you, you can, Yeah, golf people, you can call me super wrong. But for my limited knowledge of golf, and especially on a mini golf course, you only need the one putter. That's it. You don't need anything else. So I've never been playing putt-putt and had a caddy. No. Like, oh, maybe you should use a different... No. no there, there's the adult putter and there's the kitty putter. So unless he means he needs one of each for some reason, <laughs> that that's all he's got. Michael, regarding his um, sex on the third date, he has a talking head where he says, in my opinion, the third date is traditionally the one where you have sex. Does Holly feel that way? I don't know. I will probably find out tonight if she starts having sex with me. I'll know for sure. <laughs> Just sporadically. Just like a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. She's having sex with me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, and then later, uh, after the the place has been robbed and he has his own talking head where he says, so much for sex without consequences. <laughs> That's not even remotely what that phrase refers That's... to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Also, Michael, um, after the office has been robbed, he said it is not known how many office robberies occur every second because there is no Wikipedia entry for office robbery statistics. <laughs> so he clearly wanted to sound like he 
knew what he was talking about and went on Wikipedia and looked up office robberies. Um, I guess he wanted to make crime aid even more um, official. Yeah. And pitching his idea for the auction, he says, we'll auction off people like in the olden days. And you just see this death glare from Stanley in the corner. <laughs> Not funny. <Can>. <laughs> Speaking of crime aid, um, it's a, uh, gosh, I always forget the, the word of this, uh, anagram. Right, anagram or I, I was going to say acronym, but acronym. I don't know which one's correct either. Now that you have me confused, I, I can never, <laughs> I can never get them right. One is if it spells out a word, and one of us is just like, I don't know. Anyway, crime aid. He um, thought it should be called crime aid, and then came up with what it stood for. Crime reduces innocence, makes everyone angry. I declare. <laughs> I, I did some sleuthing. It is acronym. Acronym. Great. Okay. Good. I will, I'll, I'll forget it tomorrow. Probably me too. <laughs> but yeah, I love that one. Crime reduces innocence, makes everyone angry, I declare. <laughs> it makes me think of a future episode that actually happens a season, two seasons from now, uh, where I declare is used a lot. So we have that yes. to look forward to. Yes. Uh, man, what a terrible auctioneer Michael is. <laughs> you know, you have the, the fast talking people who typically run these events and he, the fastest talking he can do is come up with, Hey, batter, batter lots of times. And then lots of just absolute gibberish <laughs> nonsense that are, that's, it's not talking. It's not words. It's just sounds that sound like fast. talking. <laughs> Kevin has, uh, he, he would like to auction something, and so he tries to auction off his services as an accountant. He'll do your taxes, uh, federal and state, and crickets around the room because no one wants Kevin near their taxes. Don't want him in charge of your livelihood. No, not at all. Dwight, throughout the episode, you know, he he's very vulnerable to Phyllis, letting her in on how he feels, only for him to end their conversations by... Uh, completely ruining the moment by, for example, saying, uh, what you're eating is really fattening. She responds, it's lettuce. <laughs> or kicking her out of the elevator on the first floor so that he can go back up alone. It happens time and time again throughout the episode. Every time they meet up, he ends it by putting her down, which isn't necessarily funny. But it, uh, the there's one more example when he lets out the air out of her tires just so he can tell her. That someone let the air out of her tires and get her out of the auction so he can talk with her. She says, why didn't you just say it? You didn't have to actually do it. Nobody knew. Uh, but yeah, Dwight messing with Phyllis. I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it's worth noting just really how bad Hank's guitar playing is. <laughs> it's security guard Hank. And he, it's like he just took his first guitar lesson and he learned like one to four or five chords mm. and just... Me and the blues. I'm absolutely convinced those are the only lyrics for the whole song. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't, it's a whole CD though, and I'm wondering like how many tracks are there? Are there other chords? I think it's just that with maybe, I would buy that CD. Absolutely. I would listen to it. And the it. title is Hank Doyle <laughs> is the blues. He is the blues. Which I mean <laughs> He's the blues and then later it's me and the yeah. blues, so it's Hank and Hank. <laughs> Andy tried to comfort Angela at one point in the episode. He says, "You're always safe with me. I'm a very good screamer." 
Yeah, not a good defender of your honor. <laughs> he just can scream really loud so others can come and help. <laughs> okay, so Ryan tries to hide his face after David Wallace shows up at the auction because Ryan is scared of David Wallace after that uh, phone conversation he had a couple of episodes ago. Yeah, as yeah. he should be. But then uh, when in the aftermath of everything getting stolen, Oscar says, great, they stole my laptop. Kevin says, yeah, well, they stole my surge protector. Oscar says, how does that even compare? Kevin, Oscar, I'm now going to be prone to surges. <laughs> He's not wrong. He's not. Not at all. <laughs> Some deleted scenes from this episode. I will start strong with my personal favorite Michael asks Pam um, to overnight him a slice of New York style pizza because he has just got to have it. And she does. We see him open an envelope containing a slice that is like falling apart because <laughs> it's just not held up well. And he eats it and then quotes the Godfather. <laughs> she didn't put too much care into wrapping it. And I wouldn't have either, but it's just like a slice <laughs> no. of pizza in a cardboard envelope. Like there's no pr plastic wrap or aluminum foil. Yeah. It's just... Uh, a New York slice. And I wonder if she went and gave Michael the courtesy of getting it from his favorite New York pizza joint, Sparrow. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to sound like such a dumb New Yorker thing to say, but there are these dollar slice places mm -hmm. like all in Midtown where you can buy a slice for a dollar. That sounds amazing. It's kind of amazing. Um, they are horrible, <laughs> but you have to eat them really, really hot. And then they taste fine. If you eat them immediately, they're great. Awesome. And I can almost guarantee that's what it was because... It would be cheaper than Sparrow, and they're everywhere, and Pam does not care. So she just yeah. put it in an envelope, and like the shipping costs more than the pizza, I'm sure. Yeah, he opens it, and it's all smushed and old and falling apart, and uh, yeah, not, not happy times. Yeah. <laughs> Michael also decides to give date ideas to Jim. Uh, he says there's two sure things, and then there's a wild card. And Jim says, let's hear the wild card first. Okay, well, the wild card is dinner at a nice restaurant. And Jim says, uh-oh. <laughs> because if that is his wild card, then you better be concerned for what Michael's sure things are. And it turns out the, the first sure thing is uh, blindfolding her and taking her to a Harry Houdini museum and involving chains and not, not good ideas. And then the second one is going to the mall and going to a bed store, a mattress store letting her pick out whatever mattress she wants. Jim says, oh, that sounds nice. And then having sex on that mattress in the middle of the store. Nope, nope. I like the wild card idea. Thanks. One step too <laughs> <Yeah>. far. <laughs> he goes, surprisingly, let's do the wild card. That's nice. Speaking of Jim, Jim and Pam watch an episode of West Wing together every night that they are apart. She wanted to watch Cranford. He wanted to watch Battlestar Galactica. Pam says, well, we're going to watch Cranford next. Jim says, yeah, we're never going to watch Cranford. But I wanted to share this because the irony of Jim wanting to watch Battlestar Galactica <laughs> after all the crap he gives Dwight. Yeah. I thought that was so interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that says it's a good show. Um, I've never watched it. But... I'm sure it is. Yeah. But he needs to cut the, the making fun of Dwight <laughs> if he's going to watch it himself. <laughs> and, you know, I never heard of Cranford ever in my life. And so I looked it up and it's. I have no idea. It's a idea. BBC series. And I recognize two okay. actors in the entire production of like 20, 30 actors. One's Imelda Staunton, who wow. played uh, Umbridge in the Harry Potter series. And the other is mm -hmm. uh, Michael Gambon, who was Dumbledore from or, uh, Harry Potter 3 to the end. 
Uh, those are the only people I recognize, mm. but it it's a BBC series. There's seven episodes. so I would watch it based on the Harry Potter actors yeah. alone. <laughs> Great. <laughs> There's a meeting between Angela, Daryl, and Michael about funds needed in the warehouse. Angela is asking for Michael's approval since she's the head of accounting on moving funds around for a new forklift, among other things. And Michael says, hell yeah, which is what Holly just said to him about having sex. So clearly he's got something else on the mind. We know what it is. Daryl sees that he's distracted. So he makes up a story about like lawn gnomes in the walls of the warehouse drinking their soda pot. Uh, and Michael says, yeah, yeah, soda. <laughs> and that's, that's it. He's very clearly distracted, <laughs> looking forward to sex with Holly. Kelly is um, at the auction. I love this one. <laughs> and decides to auction off a dance lesson to learn the moves to Soldier Boy Tellum's Crank That. Ryan bids $40. He says, if I had 45 I would bid 45 If I could bid the moon and the stars, Kelly, I would bid them. And so he, he wins. Kelly is up there doing her dance and gets like really sweaty and hot and she steps off and does a talking head where she says that she's going to go to his house teach him the dance make it so that he really wants to sleep with her shower at his place and then leave <laughs> um but she's not going to sleep with him she's just like loving torturing ryan it's just so much fun <laughs> yeah i'm amazed that she's holding out so long and uh she really is bringing on the torture yeah and ryan is really really wanting her back 45 dollars worth of dance lessons when I hear back. <laughs> Dwight is sitting outside with Phyllis uh, while eating his sandwich. And he's talking about their first date. Uh, they went to the Anthracite Coal Museum, Dwight and Angela, which they'd both been to before, but they lied so that they got all of the extra information. And then they corrected the tour guides when they got it wrong. They, they thought that was so great, so romantic. And for her time and her efforts to help him out, he offers Phyllis half a sandwich. And he's got half a sandwich in his hand because he just finished the first half. He says, well, good. I will bring you one tomorrow because you have earned it. <laughs> and so he bites into the second half of the sandwich. He says, I hope you, I hope you like fox meat because it's fox meat that he's eating. So I don't think Phyllis wants that second half so much anymore. Yeah, not so much. Last one for me, Michael and Holly, um, after their not locking up the night before, make a big, huge to-do about locking up behind themselves. But they're not the last ones in the office. Andy is distracted, texting or something, and isn't watching where he's going, and runs straight into the locked glass door. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have done. It's fun. Yeah, I mean, we, we live in a day and age <laughs> when we expect doors to open for us, and uh, sometimes they don't. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple more from me. I alluded to this one earlier because there's several in a row of people dealing with the theft in the office. Creed is stealing cash off of Meredith's desk in the confusion. Stanley mourns the loss of a bottle of creamed sherry he was saving for his last day of work. And then Andy complains about how the robbers didn't just take my stuff. They adjusted my chair so that it's the same height as Phyllis's. It's got the same arm angles as Phyllis's, and it even smells like Phyllis. So, to an educated person, who I guess didn't go to Cornell, uh, Phyllis stole his chair. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the logical conclusion here. Uh, yeah. But Andy doesn't see it that way. Cornell, you mean the I, is it Ivy League? Is that yeah, right? something like that. <laughs> Did Andy go I there? I think so. Yeah. I, I, I hearsay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, one more small thing. Meredith comes up to auction her thing, but she just sort of mumbles into the microphone. So we don't know what it is. And everybody just assumes it's something sexual. 
Oscar says, I'll take it and bids a dollar. But turns out it's an iPhone and it's still wrapped and new. I don't know where Meredith got an iPhone to auction off, uh, but she did. And so now Oscar has an iPhone. Yeah. And they're like, oh, who thought that was going to be sexual? And everyone <laughs> yeah, everyone's, <laughs> including Meredith. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So for our discussion topic today, what service or item or whatever would you auction off at Crime Aid? You know that Rubik's Cube you've had sitting in the corner for the past five years and <laughs> it hasn't been solved because you don't know how, you don't want to take the time to learn how, and you don't want to peel off the stickers. I will come and I will solve that Rubik's Cube for you. Boom. I'm, I'm so glad. <laughs> Somebody needs to do it. Really. Yeah. I didn't even really have an answer to my own, my own question. I'm a photographer, so I could do that. Or, yeah. That works. I could tell you office facts. Office facts. facts. <laughs> yeah, we could do that. about the office. I will assist you and your <laughs> office trivia team. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. If you're going to a TV trivia, take me. I'm your yeah. guy. <laughs> By the way, that event is still next week. It's the same night as my orchestra's concert. So I'm hoping I can get to the later. Ah. Well, there's a later show at 930. So I'm hoping I can get there. Uh, we'll see. But right. I've been playing. There's an app on the the app store called Quiz Up. And there's an office category. And so I've been playing that a lot. Um, downloading as soon as we're done. Yep. <laughs> okay, everybody. We are recording part two of this podcast on a second night. So if we sound a little bit different... That's why, and we are going into Employee Transfer. It aired on October 30th of 2008, so it was this season's Halloween episode. It was directed by David Rogers, who was an editor, or is an editor for the show, and this was his first time directing an episode, and it was written by Anthony Farrell. A few story points in this episode, but keeping it short and sweet, when corporate found out that Michael and Holly were dating at the end of the last episode, they decided to move Holly back to her old branch in New Hampshire. So Michael's taking a personal day to move her back. Michael is convinced that they can make distance work, so they decide to give it a try, but Holly doesn't even last the ride to New Hampshire and decides to end things on the drive. Michael is, of course, devastated. It's sad. At the start of the episode, before any of the drama of the road trip happens, uh, Michael suggests to Holly that she quit and get a job in Scranton. And we see in a deleted scene that he suggested that she get a job as a baker or a baker's assistant, which calls back to Goodbye Toby when he first was trying to describe this warmth she had about her, like she was a baker already. So he suggests that, and she says, well, why, why don't you quit your job and move to Nashua and get a job in Nashua? which is the first time we know that Holly came from another Dunder Mifflin branch. It's, I don't think it's referenced before. Uh, she's just the new person uh, on the scene, and Toby had to train her. But this is the first time it's referenced she actually came from another Dunder Mifflin branch, and now she's going back. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I guess I always just assumed that she was Dunder Mifflin, um, which evidently she was, but I don't think they ever did address that. That's, that's true. Um, it's, it, it is funny to me that they discuss very, very briefly the idea of, you know, who's going to quit their job and move to the other state because in all reality, it, I guess it would have made more sense in Michael's favor for her to quit because she already lives now in Scranton and has for a bit. So mm. he might have the upper hand there, but they don't linger on it long. They jinx each other and never talk about it again and now it's moving day so mm -hmm. um evidently yeah 
it, it didn't go anywhere. She is moving back to New Hampshire. And, um, yeah, it's about a seven-hour drive, uh, as as they say in the episode. Um, and so not really doable for, you know, every weekend, although they think that they're going to get a try. Yeah, they do. It's funny, the, the just picturing them all lined up together in the front seat of Daryl's truck. It's so awful for Daryl. He's on. He's driving, of course. Michael sandwiched right next to him in the middle, and Holly on the outside. And it's just, it's it's a strange drive, is what it is. Because Michael and Holly are already strange individuals who are very much into each other, at least at the start of the trip. And uh, Daryl suffers through the good and the bad on that drive. Uh, I, I love the use of "Life is a Highway" by Tom Cochran. It's the original version from '95, I think. So not the Rascal Flats version. It's just so well utilized because it starts off, you know, they're talking about how they're going to make this drive every weekend. So lots of time on the highway. And so life would be a highway in a lot of ways for them. And they're looking forward to it at the start. But the more they hear the song, they get up to four or five times. The more they think about the distance, the harder it is to imagine maintaining that level of contact on, you know, such a a regular basis. It's it's funny how the song sort of wears on them as they continue on and it's while michael is botching the the first verse the fourth time uh when holly realizes that really she can't do this the song wears on them and by the time they get to the fourth time around and michael's still butchering that first verse uh, holly realizes that she can't spend life on a highway or even with michael on the highway that's just a lot of uh commitment and as she points out, they've only been dating for a few weeks, so it's just not going to work out. Michael is so sure, um, really, even kind of through the end of the episode, um, but we'll get to that in a bit. But he's so sure when he's talking about distance that it's going to be fine. He says, yeah, Holly's moving. It's okay. I'm going to be uh, in the car every weekend. We'll find a halfway point. I'll go to her, whatever it takes. He's just so certain that it'll be fine. Um, and things start to decline when they realize that they're about halfway between Scranton and Nashua. And great, we'll pull over and we'll find a cute little bed and breakfast somewhere to meet. And it'll be perfect. They pull over and it's nothing. There is nothing. And that's kind of when I think their spirits start to decline. And okay, maybe this isn't exactly how I pictured that it was going to be. And I think that's when Holly's wheels start turning that this is not really feasible it's so sad seeing her just all of a sudden break down crying there was also a moment where michael fell asleep during the long drive and at that point daryl points out that it's a longer drive than they expected and there's no good halfway spot it just all piles on top of her as not a good idea and she doesn't think they can make it work and it's sad because they are they're obviously a perfect match for each other we've seen that in just even these last few episodes that they've been together but distance is hard and we've talked about that too we see pam and jim struggling with distance too and they're engaged and so thankfully they have that duration but michael and holly just don't have that that additional uh foundation that jim and pam have to make it work and scranton is closer to new york than nashua yeah it's a doable commute it's only probably a few hours to get to pennsylvania uh from new york so even if you are as good a match as Holly and Michael, or at least as they seem to be at this time, you need more than a few weeks. Um, and Pam is only gone for a few months. This mm-hmm. would be an open-ended move for Holly. She would be there. I mean, she's moving back. So 
this is an, an open-ended long-distance relationship, no light at the end of the tunnel. That's a little permanent for a relationship that's been alive for three weeks, four weeks. So, yeah, I mean, I hate to say it because I love Michael and Holly, but I think that this was probably the right move because um, mm-hmm. that would be just – I could see Michael just giving and giving and giving and giving and driving every weekend and being exhausted and just unhappy because he gets to see his girlfriend for eight hours every week. Mm-hmm. It would sort of turn the relationship into a chore, just like it was with Jan. Uh, I mean, and bless yeah. him, after she breaks down, he tries so hard to hold on to her. He says, I've dated nearly four women over the last 10 years, and you are so far above them, it is stupid. And then he has his talking head uh, where they've stopped for a bathroom break or something, and he says, I'm not going to give up that easy. I'm going to make this way harder than it has to be. <laughs> his heart's in the right place. That's the, the wrong approach. But he even tells her, you know, here's my wish. I want you to meet a great guy and I want you to be happy. And she kisses him. She's thankful that he understands. He says, well, my wish has come true, incidentally, because you've met me and you are happy. (laughs) Daryl at the side says, clever, Mike. Clever, yeah. (laughs) But he even, Michael even, eventually understands that she's serious about this and is hesitant. And if there's that hesitation there, then it's just... The foundation, again, isn't there. So he breaks down and admits that, you know, I'm not strong enough. I'll probably go back to Jan and I hate Jan. And yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens at this point. But man, that that moment in Nashua after they've unloaded her stuff and Michael makes the decision, I've got to go back. I, I can't stay and suffer through this indecision, suffer through this heartbreak. I'd rather just, you know, sort of clean break it right now. I got stuff to do anyways. And when he tells her he's leaving and they just sort of wordlessly hold each other for a few seconds, it's such a sad moment. Yeah, Daryl is helping unload the truck or really doing most of the work. And he says, all right, this is the last bag. And it's Michael's overnight bag because he was going to stay with Holly. And Michael says, you know what? You can just throw that back in the car. I'm going back with you. And even Daryl is like, really? Like, you're not going to stay with her one last night? You don't want to see her off? And he says... No, this is it. Which I I don't know what to think of that. Like it's 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 so sad as you said and it's hard to see Michael <laughs> he's not a man of reality, I feel like, and so when reality finally does hit him that this is just not practical, it's kind of killer. Um because he knows. I think he knows immediately that this is a perfect woman for him and he can't have her. Um, And she wants him and he wants her and they just can't make it work. And not sticking out the weekend. I mean, I get it. It's, it's like ripping off the bandaid. They're having to say goodbye probably for a very, very long time because they've just said that they can't make the long distance part of the relationship work. So in Michael's mind and probably in Holly's mind too, why stick around and enjoy a last weekend together if it just means it's going to make the goodbye that much harder? So it reminds me of like, if you had a partner, like a boyfriend or a girlfriend in high school, and you knew that you were going to break up when you went to college, but you just like knew that that was going to happen, but you stayed together anyway until graduation. It's like, yeah, but you know, like, I wouldn't be able to enjoy the rest of that because I knew it would be ending. And I guess that's mm-hmm. kind of where Michael is, um, that it's like, it's already ruined. It's already ended so yeah a sad moment even daryl is a little 
a little bummed out by it too. And gotta love that that ending blues duet from Daryl and Michael. Uh, Michael not <laughs> understanding how to do the duet, but uh, uh, they have a good time with it anyways. And I swear, the moment where Michael or Daryl raises uh, the riff, right? He he goes da na 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 na, and Michael tries to echo it, and his voice just completely breaks. <laughs> I laugh every time, and I shouldn't because it's it's sad, but uh, it, it's really funny. It's a na 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 na. <laughs> Just trying like so hard, singing, singing his heart out. <laughs> but bless Daryl, he is helping how best he can. He knows that talking sense into Michael probably isn't going to work. That you know, really talking it out is just not not a thing that Michael's going to do. But darn it, they'll sing it out, and um, it does help. By the end of that little duet, we've got some laughs and some smiles back in Michael's. So Daryl, that was, that was sweet of him. And, uh, yeah, I think he just didn't want to sit through another seven hour drive the same day, um, with a sobbing Michael. So he tried to, tried to fix him a little, up a little bit. Now back in Scranton or in Boston, uh, Jim left at the same time as Michael to go to Boston to eat with Pam and his two brothers. So we're meeting, more Halperts for the first time, and their names are Pete and Tom, which is good trivia to remember, <laughs> to celebrate uh, Jim and Pam's engagement. Um, and it is a weird lunch, is what it is. I, what do you have to think about all that nonsense? Meeting families of other people, like, meeting your boyfriend's family is always stressful enough that the fact that they wanted to make this a joke which ultimately turned into a joke kind of against Pam is not ideal. <laughs> um, I can imagine how awkward that was for Pam. And so what they did was they wanted to play a prank on Jim. Pam was all on board with this. She came up with her own prank. She said, okay, how about this? We'll say that I lost my engagement ring. I was in class. I put it in my smock and someone stole it or I lost it. Something happened to it. And they were like, yeah, that's good. But instead, what if we just dogged you about being an artist and not making any money? And she was like, well, you came up with that awfully quickly. Um, That came out of nowhere. And they were both just so on board with it. And um, she was like, okay, yeah, I guess we'll do that one. And it just became so, like, pushed and awkward. And Jim was like, hey, guys maybe you want to calm down a little bit about this. And they just kept pushing it the whole lunch long um, to the point where it just, it wasn't even, it didn't feel like a prank. It just felt weird and attacky. It's very mean spirited, but Jim true to form is very defensive, even though they're his older brothers and they seem sort of like the stereotypical bully older brothers, not in necessarily a super bad way, but uh, he did reference some sort of history of them sort of beating him up a little bit. Uh, so he he still, nonetheless, stands up to them and says, hey, why don't we chill out and focus on just enjoying each other's company, cool it with the, the art jokes or the, the jokes at Pam's expense, because he loves her and he wants her to pursue what makes her happy. Yeah, maybe she doesn't make as much money. Who cares? Why linger on that if it makes her happy? And his brothers are just being uh, jerk bags. Uh, so I, I don't want to talk too much about the bullying itself, the the joking or the pranking that the brothers are doing, because that's my discussion topic. But it's just like they're pushing it too far. And eventually Pam does have to stand up for herself a little bit, joke or not. 
And then in Scranton, we get a uh, kind of fun storyline here between Dwight and Andy. Dwight, in, I guess, the spirit of all of this Angela stuff, shows up wearing a Cornell sweatshirt. Do you know Cornell? It's the uh, Ivy League school where Andy went. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've heard it mentioned yeah, once or twice. Yeah, Cornell. So Dwight has decided that it's time he go to Cornell. If it's such a great school and clearly anyone can get in, um, Dwight has decided that uh, he's going to go. So he's, you know, starts with the paraphernalia. He's got the sweatshirt. He's got a mug. He's got a bobblehead. He's got a, a one of those flags that I would say what they're called. Pennant. I was called a little pendant. It's not what, not what it is. <laughs> pennant. And he's just Mr. School Spirit. And Andy, our uh, anger management friend, is <laughs> losing it. So Andy decides somehow that he is going to be put in charge of Dwight's admission interview. <laughs> Apparently that's allowed, uh, which sounds like a horrible idea. So they end up just taking control over the interview. Like, it's a very um, macho dynamic. They're both just fighting it out Um Again, Dwight, I think, over Angela. Andy, because, I mean, he doesn't know about Dwight and Angela, but just a power struggle. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty comical. I have a lot of questions about this. Uh, th- there is a deleted scene that sort of answers at least one of them, uh, so we'll get to it. But what is Dwight hoping to accomplish? Is it is he just irritating Andy for irritation's sake because he took what Dwight wanted? It, I mean... I don't know what his end goal is here. What do you think? I think it might just be to irritate him. I mean, it's not like it has anything to do with Angela. Mm-hmm. It's not It's not trying to win her back in any way. She's not... They, I, I, I guess it would just be, okay, if I can't have her back, I'll at least make you miserable. Right. Um, which is very mature and, and, and straight thinking. But I guess it's just his petty little... I have to get you somehow, and if I can't have what I want, I'll just get you some other way. But then my follow-up question would be, why is Andy so bothered by it? Because by all appearances, Dwight and Andy are friends at this point. They had a rough patch at the beginning, but after they got past that, they've gotten along pretty well. So is it because he knows that Dwight isn't serious? But if that's the case, what motivation would Andy see Dwight having for irritating him like this. It's not like he knows about the affair. So what what does Andy think Dwight's doing? I mean, do you know what I mean? Why why does Andy automatically assume that he's joking about it rather than maybe being serious, actually? That I don't know, because even just seeing Dwight in a Cornell sweatshirt, he says, take that sweatshirt off, and he's, like, clearly already really agitated. I don't know. I mean, you and I both went to Texas Tech. If I saw somebody... Wreck him. If I saw somebody <laughs> with... I don't know... It was, tech sweatshirt on and they didn't go to tech i would still be excited be like cool you're a fan like are you you know if if they were applying even better i don't know yeah even if you have anger issues like andy does i don't know why that's motivation enough to be angry i mm, i don't know i wonder if andy just feels such a need to be unique that cornell is his thing and so no matter who it was he wouldn't want to share being a Cornell graduate with anybody else in the office, you know, maybe. Yeah. That's his one thing. Yeah. It's what makes him special. It's impressive. It's a good school. It's Ivy league. And yeah, I guess anybody else having that would make him not special. 
Mm-hmm. So that's a good point. It yeah. sort of goes back to what Ryan said back in the fire in season two. I don't want to be a guy who has a thing here. Uh, he ends up being the fire guy by the end of that episode. But Andy is the Cornell guy. And with Dwight sort of in, encroaching on that territory, I can sort of understand why Andy would feel threatened because he would no longer be the only one. So I, I love Andy or Dwight's quote. If someone who barely outsells Phyllis can get in, I should be fine. He says, I meant that as a compliment to you, Phyllis, as well as a slight to Andy. I don't know if that quite balances, but uh, maybe. Which... Didn't we discuss that Phyllis was above Andy as far as sales ability? I was surprised to hear that he was a better salesman than Phyllis. I want to say that Andy's sales ability is more of a focus later in the show. I remember specific moments where Andy says, I'm the the worst salesman in the office or something like that. But I I think that is actually much later. But Hmm, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe there has been a reference or two at this point. Um, So as you mentioned, he does call admissions and gets them to conduct Dwight's interview. And I just have to wonder how. Like, did Andy's family put a lot of money into the school? And so he has some sort of extra pull? Very likely. However, it does not seem like a good idea at all. No. It's it's not in Cornell's favor to have somebody that, like, if... I was doing a college admission interview. I wouldn't want to know the person because a, they either like me and I'm going to get in and I don't deserve to get in or B, they don't like me and I'm not going to get in. And like if I may deserve to get in. Mm -hmm. So it's just not a good idea. And, um, why they would let that happen. I don't know. I hope that's not a real thing. (laughs) As Dwight points out, uh, that's a conflict of interest. And Andy says, Oh yeah, big one. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I know. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, otherwise, uh, aside from the whole money thing, Andy's a pretty unexceptional Cornell graduate, and he's selling paper at a small regional paper company. So he really shouldn't have much say, especially once we see how the interview ends up going. It's just a mess. It It's so unproductive. It's very clearly biased on both sides. And yeah, that's how that goes down. <laughs> I love remembering that Andy, who is a Cornell grad, is managed by Michael, who did not go to college. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. that's just, it just must knock Andy down a big peg, you know? Yeah. Uh, let's move on to funny stuff. Starting off with Michael. Uh, when he does fall asleep, as I mentioned earlier, he wakes up screaming from a nightmare. <laughs> and it's just like, all of a sudden he's yelling. And Holly didn't even know he'd fallen asleep. Because he was talking before, Michael says, did I say anything interesting? Daryl, not really. Just flat out, nope, he didn't. See, to me, I always thought that he didn't actually fall asleep. That he just wanted attention. I don't know why I feel like Hmm. that. But that he, it just seems like something that a kid would do. I don't know why I have that thought. I could be totally crazy. But just like, it just makes me think of like, there's people that... I don't know where I'm going with this, but anyway, I feel like he's lying, but that's a different story. I know what you mean, but uh, for me, it also, in favor of him actually falling asleep, it emphasized the dif- the distance further to Holly. If if Michael, if the trip is long enough for Michael to just suddenly fall asleep, then maybe not such a great idea. Yeah, if he's going to be making the drive every weekend. Yeah. Definitely not something he needs to be doing. 
as you mentioned, it was the Halloween episode. They uh, didn't get a whole lot of screen time in costume, but we did get the cold open. We see some costumes. My uh, the, or the most notable one, I think, would be Pam. Uh, apparently in New York, they don't dress up like they do in Scranton, so she was the only one dressed up. She dressed up as Charlie Chaplin, but, as I said, the only one, so she looks a little crazy. And she can't even remove her hat, because if you can think of what Charlie Chaplin looks like without his hat, he looks like Hitler. <laughs> Especially if you're somebody dressing up as Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> yeah. So, she's got the little mini mustache, and I forget what it's called, little thumbprint on her lip and uh that's what she looks like all day <laughs> yeah then we've got oscar dressed as uncle sam uh, angela dressed as a cat again and uh to to match her i suppose andy is dressed up as not a cat but a kitten which is the most ridiculous thing it's so awkward he's wearing he's basically wearing <laughs> a broadway costume from cats yeah, it's like a spandex. Yeah, instead of owning up to the fact that it's a Broadway costume, he says, no, I'm a kitten, which just makes it awkward. Yeah, like, g go with the less embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> we also have Jim as his usual min minimalist self, dressing up as Dave, which is um, Jim in his office attire with a name tag that says Dave. And we have Creed, Dwight, and Kevin all dressed up as the Joker in various um, degrees of accuracy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, some, you know, low-budget Jokers, some high-budget Jokers. But it should be noted that um, The Dark Knight came out in July of 2008. This episode was released in October of 2008, mm -hmm. so... Right on theme there. Everyone would have dressed up as a Joker in 2008, so that makes sense. Yeah, it's like if this had aired in Halloween of 2016, two or three of the women might have been dressed up as Harley Quinn because of the Suicide Squad coming out that year. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, that's what happened in real life. Everybody was ha uh, Harley Quinn that year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, then we have Kelly dressed as Carrie Bradshaw from Sex and the City. And, you know, we had the Dorothy costume in the first Halloween episode in season two. And Michael says, you know, that doesn't really work because you're Indian and Dorothy is clearly not Indian. And that's not the case here. But I don't think it's racist to say that this doesn't work for her. It's not a costume that's recognizable even on a white woman because it's literally just that. That's all the costume is, is Carrie it's Bradshaw is wig. white woman. <laughs> Like, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it doesn't work. And it's not because yeah. of a race. It's just strange. But, and she's like teetering on these really high heels. It's like, I can't drop, I, I can't dress up as Carrie Bradshaw. I would be just dressing up in a fancy outfit like I have money. Like, that's it. Yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it, it's strange. Uh, yeah. And then Ryan is dressed as Gordon Gecko from the movie Wall Street, uh, starring Michael Douglas, uh, whose signature line in the movie is, greed is good. So we know what sort of statement Ryan is trying to make after getting fired from the company for fraud. Uh, is he trying to say that he didn't do anything wrong? Because if that's the case, he's sort of pulling a Michael and making the bad guy of the movie the good guy, just like Michael did with The Devil Wears Prada and Meryl Streep's character. And Kelly, of course, confuses him with the Gecko Gecko, <laughs> because Gecko, yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Works. Uh, she, he looks exactly like the commercial, so I understand her confusion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Back to Michael. I, I love how uh, he mumbles through the chorus of Life is a Highway. He says four times the charm. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. He, he doesn't know any of it. It's completely wrong. <laughs> uh, 
but also when they're leading up to the halfway point, he says, I want to find a bed and breakfast halfway emphasis on the bed and the breakfast. And I just wrote same. Yeah. Breakfast is pretty important to me too. (laughs) (laughs) Beds are all the same, but breakfast Mm -hmm. (laughs) when Holly starts crying in the car, when she realizes that this is not going to work, um, she just starts sobbing like hard and, it's she's clearly crying and michael turns to her and says are you crying <laughs> yes yes she's crying <laughs> and then he asks is it allergies no if someone has watery eyes maybe you can ask if it's allergies this is not allergies and then he asks okay so in the car it's daryl behind the wheel michael in the middle holly by the window he asks if Daryl touched her. No. Daryl says, what? <laughs> and Holly just looks at Michael like, are you an idiot? And he did not touch me. No, I'm crying because we're breaking up. <laughs> yeah, basically. Oh, did Daryl touch you? Michael, Michael. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, um, they get into an argument over uh, how to pronounce Cornell. It's just a back and forth across the whole office. And Creed, our favorite speaks up and says, it's pronounced Colonel. It's the highest rank in the military. He's wrong on both counts, as it turns out. On both counts. (laughs) Because in the U.S., at least, Colonel is not the highest rank. It is below Brigadier and General Officer. So there's some military knowledge for you. We have all kinds of facts here on American (laughs) (laughs) Rifles. At the very end of the episode, we have a bit of a foil here which is kind of fun it this kind of throws back to the dwight jim dress up where um they kind of dress up as each other andy dresses up as dwight at the end of this episode uh including overalls um a big uh straw hat and a basket full of beets of raw beets he tries to take a bite out of one but can't because they are rock solid um he says, you're probably supposed to cook these, right? He tosses Dwight one, and Dwight, the uh, rural beet farmer that he is, sinks his teeth into one, no problem. Yeah, he just scoffs and says, Cornell. <laughs> Crunch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what about deleted scenes? How about you start us off there? One of my uh, favorite deleted scenes from this, Daryl is getting more and more perturbed um, on this car ride, on this very long car ride with two very odd people. Um, and Michael and Holly are watching a DVD in a DVD player that's sitting on the dash and the window's open. So it's, it's, as I said, Holly is by the passenger window. That window is down and, um, they're laughing really obnoxiously at this DVD. Daryl can't watch the DVD because he's driving and he makes the best out of a bad opportunity and makes a sharp turn and the DVD goes flying out of the window um they actually mention in the commentary here that we get that um that actually only happened once and um the director said you know what this is probably going to get cut anyway but i really just want one good shot of this and they got one and it was on the first take i think um it didn't make it into the episode but they had to put it in the deleted scenes because it was just too perfect yeah i like the deleted scene it makes me laugh and there's also a couple other moments with daryl sort of dealing with holly and michael uh watching them play like gross lip kissing games uh and then there's the whole uh where is it talking about cow surfing 
Holly and Michael are playing a game together and Daryl says, Hey, you've got to include me in some conversations. So it's just not me by myself for seven hours. So Michael says, so what, what kind of card games do you play in the hood? And Daryl being a quick thinker says cow surfing. The, they see a cow. The last person to say Jackson five has to ride the cow. So they play and Michael automatically loses. They pull over and Holly tells Michael it's a fake game just as she's trying to get out. And Daryl says, yes, I made it up. I just wanted you to like me again, BSing it. <laughs> so uh, yeah. I, those are, they're funny scenes, but I'm kind of glad they were left out of the actual episode because to me, it would have lessened that those final moments between Daryl and Michael, where Daryl's trying to comfort him with music. Uh, Cause that's a really sweet moment. And he's comforting Michael when he doesn't have to, after being put through all he's been put through that day. And he's sharing in some camaraderie with Michael that he knows he will appreciate. And so I'm, I'm glad that they took sort of the more antagonistic Daryl out of the episode and left it in the deleted scenes so that we could have the, the sweeter, more compassionate Daryl in the actual episode. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but there is one more I wanted to mention. You kind of touched on it, the gross kissing <laughs> games. But this one in particular, uh, in the car, Michael and Holly... Um, are trying to see how long they can hold their breath while kissing. And Daryl says, at least it's quiet. <laughs> and it reminds me of like, if, you know, it, it's like the quiet game mm -hmm. for kids, which is really, I'm sure that that was just invented by parents just trying to be like, please shut up for like five seconds um, to their kids. <laughs> and this is Daryl's quiet game with them. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, at the start of the episode, Holly is saying goodbye to everyone. And Oscar expresses doubt that they'll see her again anytime soon because, you know, even a flight is a big ordeal because of where they're located in relation to airports. It'd be a two and a half hour drive to here and then an hour and a half flight and then another two hour drive. So it all really sort of equals out to the drive itself. And Holly says, I just want to say goodbye. Like, stop lingering on this. And so you're starting to see the seeds of doubt already sprouting here before she's even left Scranton. And then Kevin hugs her and apparently, like, propositions her in her ear and she completely turns it out she says yeah that won't be happening <laughs> and then kelly says yeah it's smart for you to break up with michael and holly says no we'll be going long distance actually and kelly says oh well that's so romantic <laughs> and she, she just completely flip-flops based on the scenario yeah we've seen her do that a few times she uh kind of bites her tongue a few times they're is a scene that I really wish they'd left in. And I sort of referenced this earlier because it's about the whole Dwight Andy situation. Angela approaches Dwight in the break room and says, why are you doing this? And Dwight says, Angela, uh, you said that Andy and me have different strengths, but Dwight knows that Andy can't do what Dwight can do in regards to survival, in regards to farming, the example he gives, like how to make food and shelter from a golden retriever. Not a skill I think Andy needs to know, but we get his point, I suppose. Uh, but he says, if I can get into Cornell, that may not make you leave Andy, but you'll lose respect for him. And she says, yeah, you're probably right. And so I think that's sort of what it all boils down to. But then it raises the question, do we actually think Dwight was going to try to get into Cornell just to prove a point? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I could see that argument. Mm -hmm. um, so the episode, how it aired, to me, it's just getting at Andy. It's just messing with him because he has no other tactic to mess with him. Mm -hmm. If he's not going to be sleeping with Angela anymore, that's out the window. 
So now it's just, what can I do to, to mess with him? But had they left that deleted scene in, which again, do these count? I don't know. This would make a lot more sense, I think, in the context of the episode, that he is just adding to his tool belt. What can I take that Andy has? Okay, his degree. I can have that. And that'll make me, you know, above and beyond what Andy already is. Leveling the playing field and then what Dwight thinks of himself is just more than what Andy has, if that makes any sense at all. It does. It would have given him an, a, yeah. a, a proper end goal to his irritating yeah. Andy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I wish it, they had left that in as well, if only just to give some reason behind this, this prank, if you will. Right. Make it appear a little bit less petty. Yeah. I have just one more. Um, in the car, Michael says, this is after the, the bomb has been dropped. Holly thinks they're not going to make it. Uh, so Michael says, you know, we want the same things. And Holly says, yes, we do. But from seven hours away from each other, Michael says, that's a lucky number. You know, there's seven up, seven dwarfs, seven deadly sins. It's a sign. I don't know if you'd count seven deadly sins as a good sign, but there was one more tidbit re revealed in that same scene as well, where Holly says, you know, we don't really know anything about each other. Did you know I'm an atheist? I don't know what your religion is. So not that it's necessarily a huge deal, but Holly is an atheist apparently. So learning things in the deleted scenes, it's cool. We don't always get mm -hmm. character facts in the deleted scenes. So that's cool. Yeah. What about commentary? Commentary. Um, I didn't get a ton from this commentary, to be honest. But what I did get, um, they were originally supposed to wear their Halloween costumes for the whole episode, but it ended up only being in the cold open. So some Halloween episodes in the office, we get the whole episode is about Halloween. Some we just get little bits. Here we just got the cold open. Yeah, they said it was the hardest cold open they'd done so far. I don't remember specifically why. Uh, but I mean, if they had stayed in their Halloween costumes the whole time, there would have been a Joker dressed in a Cornell costume or a Cornell sweatshirt. So, yeah, like they couldn't get the, the stories to mash together. Yeah. The monster mash together. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I kind of walked into that Just one. a little bit. <laughs> um, the <laughs> Cornell mug that, uh, Dwight is showing off during one of the, uh, talking heads, was asked for and made within two hours. It was like, hey, let's make Dwight as Cornellian as possible. Let's get him a mug. Okay. Boom, they go make it. Boom, here it is. Let's film it. So I thought, really quick turnaround as far as uh, uh, material production goes. The commentators note that the actors playing Jim's brother, Pete and Tom, I gotta get that in my head, <laughs> gave the same look to the camera that Jim does. They both give that like meta glance to the camera. So they do it and then it pans to Jim and then he does it. So they're clearly brothers. Um, as you said, they're a bit less eloquent. They are the, um, they're not as good at joking as, as Jim is. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like Dwight, you know, if, if Dwight was to try and reverse a prank on Jim, it feels like what we got from the brothers. Um, which, speaking of that scene, they they mentioned how important it was to everyone that they got Pam to stand up for herself during that sort of interrogation, joking by the brothers. Uh, because, I mean, again, we, we saw in season three, that was her whole, her whole 
character arc was gaining more personal strength and standing up for herself and speaking her mind. And then we saw her lose that a little bit when she went to college just because she was in a new environment. And hopefully it's starting to come back a little bit more as she stands up for herself and says, listen, maybe I can't do uh, or won't make a lot of money with an art degree, but I've got to try. And so I, I thought that was neat to point out that they wanted to highlight that Pam still is the Pam that she was at the end of season three, at least in some respects. Honestly, the last one for me um, is that they noted that Holly, when she's crying in the car, was able to cry every single take. And they mentioned how um, crazy it is. I think it was this commentary that they mentioned Mm -hmm. that you have a follow car, you have a lead car, you have, you know, cameras in the car, maybe a camera guy in the car, depending on, on on the situation. But it's not a super forgiving um playing space it's not like you're in a big room and you have a moment to like gather yourself and get your thoughts in order and then act mm-hmm. they have you know okay you have to start and then you're driving like they're on a road mm-hmm. um and the fact that she's just able to cry every single take um and then okay reset i'm happy okay and then cry every time is just ridiculous it's so impressive right not to mention that uh they were even getting like director notes between takes on a walkie-talkie just because they didn't want to leave the car have that moment get back in the car and do all that it it was not super conducive to like the most solid acting you could give but she she does really really well uh just a couple of small things that we don't need to linger on. They talked about how the original location for the halfway point scene where Michael envisions a bed and breakfast would have been uh, was originally somewhere else. But they learned that in, uh, another production was going to be nearby on the highway, that same strip uh, with a live band. So they changed produ- changed locations to save their sound team a little bit of extra work. And then they also mentioned that the acapella groups that were listed by uh, Dwight were ad-libbed by Rain Wilson a lot of the time. So there were lots of different variations. And then the role models during the interview were ad-libbed as well. So uh, they said one of the favorite ones that popped up during the many takes was Alan Thicke as Dwight's role model. (laughs) I think that might be it, um, our discussion topic. Yeah, I've got... Uh, one serious one and one not so serious one, but uh, what to what extent do you think Tom and Pete were actually kidding with Pam? Like, this doesn't feel like kidding. What what were they trying to accomplish? Were they just bad at kidding, or was there some sort of undertone to it? I don't know. A bit of both. While that's a cheating answer, um, I think it is what I believe. They... They did come up with it pretty quickly. They mentioned something about that they used to do this with Jim's girlfriends in high school mm-hmm. or something. But in high school, how can you really tease someone about their career path? Right. You can't. They're in high school. So I don't know how much truth is in that. I get that it's an easy... I mean, we're in the arts. I get that it's an easy thing to like poke fun at. It's like, oh, you must not make any money. It's like, yeah, yeah, I don't. But like, it's... A little aggressive, and I think even Jim takes more offense to it than Pam does. She she starts to feel really hurt. I think I I, I don't I don't know. It, it's hard because I mean we see how good a guy Jim is, and we'd want to think that his family is sort of on the same page. I almost want to say 
they, they there were sort of undertones of maybe warning Jim just a little bit, just looking out for him. Like, mm-hmm. this is who you're marrying. Consider what she's pursuing and think about your future together. Is this going to work if she's not making enough money? So, yes, they were joking, but they were also giving Jim and Pam something to think about. Is this really the, the best use of your time and money right now if it's not going to return your investment in the long run? But, again, they were trying to hide it under the guise of actually joking and it just doesn't come across that way unfortunately so and i don't even know if they were doing it to like hey maybe you don't want to marry her because if they know their brother at all they know that he wants to marry her but it's just like a by the way you'll be making more more money than she will if she pursues art Mm -hmm. and even if that was true like we all know that jim's okay with Mm -hmm. that he would He'd be fine if she didn't want to work. He'd be fine and whatever. You know, he would want to make her happy. So Yeah, he's not Roy. Right, exactly. Um, so I guess it's just like a poke at him to say, like, you'll be making more money. I don't know. Very ineffective. And it is worth pointing out that at the end of it all, Jim and Pam are walking together and he gets a text from them and says that that's that reads, Pam cool, welcome to the family. So they work it out. Maybe they appreciate the fact that she sort of stands up for herself and that Jim is so adamant in her adamant. I can never remember how to pronounce that um, in, in his support for her. So it, it works itself out in the end. But anyways, I just thought that was a good discussion point. My less serious discussion topic is what is your go-to driving song? We hear life is a highway four and a half times in this song or in this episode. What would your driving song be? See, I don't drive anymore, um, which is unfortunate because I always liked driving and blasting music, which I don't really get to do anymore. But when I last had a car, I was listening to a lot of fun mm-hmm. because, pardon the pardon the pun, I think there were a lot of fun to listen <laughs> to while driving. Queen yeah. is always good. Like, if I do a road trip, Queen plays, for sure. Like, constantly. So... I- I'm going to say anything by Queen. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've got a a few answers. Um, Billy Joel is my favorite. Obviously, I've already made allusions to that many times. Uh, Hamilton is great driving stuff, especially Act 1 before it gets super depressing. Uh, (laughs) Soundtracks, yeah. Broadway soundtracks. If I have a car, that's what I miss is being able to sing along. Mm -hmm. And on the subway, they look at you funny. So... (laughs) It's just just fun. make it Les Mis and turn it uh, turn it into like a production. Make get some money out like and then just a couple more like recent things. Feel it still by Portugal the Man. I'm still on that song. Still. We have many a tweet back and forth about the song because we both love the song and it gets in our heads too. If there was a band that formed their entire style and sound around that song, I would listen to nothing but that band. Favorite. It is so good. It would be so good. <laughs> that is the end of our official 41st episode of An American Workplace. Contact us at facebook.com slash workplacepod or at workplacepod on Twitter. If you care to rate, review, and subscribe and or subscribe, you can do so on iTunes, and you can email feedback and ideas to workplacepod at gmail.com. 
You can find me on Twitter at ktlady623 or at facebook.com slash katie.white. The best place to find me is still on Twitter at chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. Also facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And then my other podcast, Cinescope, where we talk about the movies we love and why we love them. You can find that where podcasts can be found and also thecinescopepodcast.com. And all show notes and contact information for this show can be found at workplacepodcast.com. Another shout out to Shirley Lim for being our latest Patreon subscriber. Thank you to all of our subscribers. We always appreciate the support and we hope you appreciate the bonus material. If you want a shout out and more on an American Workplace each week, including access to our discussion, outline notes, a logo sticker, bonus episodes, live streams, etc., check out our Patreon page and pick the support level that you think it is most worth at patreon.com slash workplace pod. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us to watch one of our favorite shows, The Office, here on episode 41 of An American Workplace. Make sure to join us in episode 42 for our discussion on the next two episodes of season five, Customer Service and Business Trip. Bye. Bye. Oh no, we lost Katie again. <laughs> there you are. Oh, okay. There, you, good. <laughs> I'll send that text anyways because that's what I did out loud. Anyways. Good lord. Okay. okay. <laughs> Quick, finish the episode. Okay. <laughs>